0: Thank you for joining us for another episode of EK On The Go, recorded here in the University District at Jack Straw Cultural Center. Last time, author Mark Holson toured us through Seattle's Rainier Valley, circa 1955. Through the eyes of a child, the book celebrated many of the cultures, be they Japanese-American, Italian-American, African-American, Filipino-American, that have historically shaped that community. Our journey today begins nearby, a few blocks away from Seattle's Rainier Valley, Spanning the Central District to the north, and the lapping shores of Lake Washington in Seward Park to the south, our focus is Seattle's Sephardic Jewish community, who have been a central part of this area since the late 19th century, and some of whom were the original produce vendors at Seattle's Pike Place Market. For those of our listeners who are unaware, Sephardim are people of Jewish heritage, who trace their lineage back to the 14th century's Golden Age of Spain, their Spanish ancestors were expelled from their home country in 1492. More about that soon. Joining us today is someone whose family history and life choices connect her both to the 20th century in Seattle and to the 15th century in Spain, and with many stopping points in between. Our guest today is Doreen al hadith Doreen traces her family history to Seattle in 1906. She co founded the Seattle Sephardic Network, which provides a space for Sephardic Jews to celebrate and learn about their culture. She holds the distinction of being the first Jewish American to officially embrace Spain's 2015 law, granting the opportunity for citizenship, the first time this was possible for 500 years. And through it all, Doreen became an ambassador to the Spanish citizenship effort for Jewish people globally. So today, we'll get to explore what happens to us as individuals and as a community. When we lose the places that matter most to us, especially our homes and our homeland. How we can preserve lost places through family traditions, religious observances, and maybe most important, food and language. What happens to us and to our lives when opportunities to reconnect become available, even 500 years later. And stick around, at the end of the show, Doreen's going to be sharing some exciting personal news straight from the King of Spain. Welcome, Doreen.
1: Hi, thanks for having me. So, Doreen,
0: traces our family history to Seattle in 1906?
1: 1906. My grandmother came in 1906. She was the first Sephardic woman to come. I think there were about 18 people at that time that were Sephardics in the area, and she had... um, She came from Istanbul. She made an intermediate stop in Boston where she had a job as a translator. It's a woman who spoke six languages, and then she moved to Seattle. As she spoke so many languages, she was able to help, when she got here, uh, settle a lot of people who actually did not speak English. So she helped many people in the social services, and when they came to Seattle to help them get settled, find places to live, and to find where they could find um, aid when they needed it.
0: And then remind us uh, what languages she spoke.
1: She spoke Turkish, French, Spanish, Ladino, Yiddish, believe it or not, Um, and I think she spoke Italian. Okay. Her grandparents were born in Italy. So from her trail of watching her family, uh, you can see a little bit of the diaspora, so Spain and then Italy and then into the Ottoman Empire.
0: Wow. What was your relationship with her growing up?
1: She and I were very close. Um, so you spoke a little bit earlier about the Sur Park neighborhood. She and I both lived in the Sewer Park neighborhood, as did my aunts and uncles uh, that were her children, as well as on my mother's side. So we were walking distance to her house and probably saw her after school two, three days a week. And we had family dinners every Sunday with and everybody. What was, was the name
0: of the street that you grew up on?
1: I grew up on Brighton and she lived on South Hawthorne Road.
0: Okay. And can you paint a picture of what life was like maybe as a young girl in Seward Park at the time?
1: Well, as a young girl in Sewer Park at the time, not only did my immediate family live close by to aunts and uncles, but many extended family and others of the Sephardic community lived nearby. And it was a time when children walked to school. You met others along the way. You could be given the missive of dropping something off to somebody's house. And it it felt very tight as a community, even though it was interspersed and actually it was a very diverse neighborhood. We so had lots of exposure that. from other cultures and other people. Um, and I think that from my standpoint, as I look now, since much of that has been lost, that much of the education I received in that neighborhood and in those schools early on was best from the multicultural experience.
0: So tell us about the different cultures and languages and We had
1: you know the Japanese, the Chinese, the Filipinos, we knew exactly when the holidays were, we knew what the foods were. When I was younger, I was very good at distinguishing between a Good lumpia and a bad lumpia. (laughs) Um, And we had a lot of African-Americans around. And as we got older, you know, those social issues sort of came to play. They became part of our lives. Um, But as far as the community goes and growing up in that neighborhood, the idea of, you know, watching out for others because you knew others in the neighborhood, you knew them well, um, was very important. And it just felt like a very tight-knit community.
0: And then where do you go to elementary, junior, and high school?
1: I went to Graham Hill Elementary after two years at High School, which is in the Leshai neighborhood. We moved to Sewer Park then. So I went to Graham Hill, which was brand new at the time we were in portables, and graduated to a building, I think, when I was in third grade. I went to Sharpless Junior High, which no longer exists, and Franklin High School. Okay. And Total melting pots on all counts.
0: Gotcha. And then what languages did you speak at home, you know, between you and your parents? And-
1: Growing up, You know, English was obviously the predominant language, but the older generation, including parents, aunts, and uncles, and my grandparents, spoke Ladino, which is a 15th century Spanish that has been changed by the Sephardics as they moved from country to country. You know, Certain things were added, a little bit of Greek, a little bit of Turkish, some Italian. And whenever there was either somebody from the older generation present or they wanted to speak about something that they didn't want the children to understand, they immediately went to Ladino. And, of course, you learn it just by the osmosis of being there. And it had some very wonderful things about it. Not only did it seem rich from a standpoint of we all thought it was Spanish. We didn't know the difference until much later. But there were wonderful refrains and, and swearing and and little just interesting words that were fun to them and became even more fun for us.
0: Okay. What about food? Like, how was that distinct from the food of the other cultures?
1: It was very different. And clearly, we were growing up in a world where it was very Ashkenazic-centric. Sure. Um, but because of the density of the Sephardic population in Sewer Park, I mean, I think I was a teenager before I ever even had a knish or a kugel or anything. We had food that was very, very Sephardic. And my grandmother was from Turkey, and my grandfather and my two other grandparents, who I never met, but that side of the family was also from the island of Rhodes. So things had lots of tomato sauce, lots of lemon, things that were of sometimes of Spanish. They had meatballs and tomato sauce certain ways to cook vegetables, a lot of Greek influence also, um, a lot of fish. And it was very, very different than the Ashkenazic community. We weren't noodle-centric. We didn't do so much potato.
0: You know, I'm of Ashkenazi heritage. I will definitely, Sephardim, you definitely have the better food.
1: Oh, it's it's wonderful. And it's because it's grabbed maybe the best from so many different places. Uh And they've just sort of carried it with them.
0: Yeah. Well, we'll kind of go back to the Expulsion in 1492, but I really wanted to, to pause and talk about Turkey and how, you know, why your grandmother at least or your ancestors left those countries. What caused them to? We know why people left Spain is because they had to, but why did the Sephardim then migrate out, from, from other places? Yeah.
1: You know, I don't know exactly for sure. It was my understanding from my grandmother that um, things became difficult both business-wise and just sort of making a living as well, as there seemed to be some prejudice going on as well. And my grandmother had two brothers, so she ended up here. As I said, after Boston, she ended up in Seattle. Her two brothers went to Lima, Peru. Hmm. And so they sort of you know, dispersed that way. And then there were two other girls in the family that were left in uh, Istanbul that were working. The older ended up going to be with her brothers in Lima, and the youngest... Who had spent some time going to high school here with my grandmother's family, with you know my father's generation, basically, had gone back to Istanbul working. She in 1957 um, came here, and she had a special visa because of the quota system that existed at the time. That my grandmother had to say that she would be in charge of all her support and whatever, and that she could never work here. And so she came in 57 and lived with my grandmother and all of us um, until she passed away. She was um, highly educated. It was really—I always felt it was such a shame she was never allowed to work here. Mm. But that's how the visa came through, and mm-hmm. that's what they did. Mm-hmm.
0: So let's roll back a 1,000 years, and how did Jewish people arrive in Spain in the first place?
1: It is my understanding that they came with the Romans, actually, in around seven 800, and that they stayed. They made it a homeland— Um, It wasn't that they came much later in bigger amounts. I mean, they came, they established a community, they grew with the Iberian Peninsula. So it wasn't really Spain, Spain at the time. And they became quite entrenched in that life. They... When schools there, they became doctors, they became, you know, what anybody would become in a normal society. Mm-hmm. And it was a society that had at that time, and then later they ended up with Moors in Spain that had come in. And it was a society that actually was a very tolerant one in the Jews, the Christians, and the Moors lived all together. They all flourished within their own community. Um, and I think there was probably a lot of interchange, both of cultural things and, and values as well.
0: And then what happened over time? You know, What was it that caused the Spanish government to expel Jews?
1: I think that you could probably go back historically to say maybe this is a something that was a bit of an occasion that came to hold on to power. And um, at that point in time, it was important to show that you were a pure Christian, and these were Catholic king and queen. And to do that, they had what they called, the, they had pure blood and blood that had no tainting to it at all. And to do that, and to have a pure kingdom and maintain their power, I think that they at some point obviously felt it was necessary to expel the Jews and to hold on to power by means of a pure-blood country. And in March of 1492, they did an expulsion. And,
0: and then how quickly was that process executed It was the very
1: Jews? quick, but they gave them a choice of converting or leaving. And You know, the numbers on this are all very mixed. A good deal of them, a lot of people went into uh, Portugal because they shared that part of it and thought that they could go there and have a life. But five years later, Portugal had its own inquisition and and expulsion of the Jews. I don't know that it was an inquisition, but expulsion of the Jews. Mm -hmm. And then they dispersed even further to Holland and Italy. And then at that time, around that time, the Ottoman Empire was very welcoming, very open, and so many of them went across the Mediterranean into the Ottoman Empire to settle because they were welcome there.
0: Okay, and the Ottoman Empire was was centered in Turkey.
1: Turkey and parts of Greece and so it's, you know, it's
0: interesting because there's a lot of when I go to different synagogues, or you hear people with Sephardic pronunciation of the prayers, but from the Netherlands or whatever, and I guess this is why, right, that the Sephardim dispersed not just to Turkey, not just to Morocco, no. not just to the land of right. Israel, but to the Low Countries and all right. over the world. Right. Yeah. One of the things I ask our guests to do is to consider a place that matters for them in the Pacific Northwest, and I'm going to actually take the liberty of sharing a place that matters to me, but not in the Pacific Northwest, because it relates to your story, but in a very circuitous way, so you'll have to just suffer through. Okay. Um, when I was first in Israel, the country of Israel, I went to Tiberias on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, and I visited the grave of Moses Maimonides, known as Rambam, who's you know a great philosopher contributor to Judaism, but was also a victim of the Spanish expulsion and, and had this, I believe that he traveled to Morocco initially, he was a physician, trained as a physician, he fled to Morocco, I believe it was around 1100, and then ended up in Egypt and became the head, chief physician to the king of Egypt, to the ruler of Egypt, and then he, I believe he died in Egypt, but then wanted his body repatriated to the land of Israel, and so that's why how he wound up in Tiberias. So to me it's an it was a jarring and amazing story going to a small kind of tourist town in northern Israel and then discovering the grave of Maimonides, you know, someone who I've known of my whole life, and then hearing his history, stretching back to Spain of all places, the Middle East and and whatnot. But I understand there's like some family connection to a Seattle family.
1: Right. So there is a family in Seattle that's Maimon. Okay. From Maimon from Maimonides. And so I think that they feel that there is a connection there and and it goes back. I don't know that anybody's fully traced it, but yeah. Maimon from Maimonides, considering how things changed in names and that sort of thing, I probably, um, I think they feel that there probably is a descendancy there yeah. to the Maimon family. And the Maimon family has had rabbis, and so it, you know, it sort of follows through a little bit with that history.
0: Uh-huh. It was hard to get that out of my mind. So I was just curious if there's a place here locally that sticks in your mind, or is it inspiring or curious and relates to your your journey and interests?
1: I don't know that there's a specific place per se, but as we talk about neighborhoods and that sort of thing, when I'm in sort of the core of Sewer Park, it was a formative time, and I do feel very much at home there. I've lived away from it for many, many years. And I also have fond feelings about it because it was where I felt the culture to be the most concentrated and rich. Um, We've all sort of assimilated into something else, but that sort of uh, concentration of family, of culture, of foods, of customs sort of draws me.
0: Well, good. So we will talk a little bit about Efforts currently at preservation and celebration of that culture, but I wanted to talk a little bit more about your relationship to Spain and what brought you there originally, and then maybe about this whole citizenship and your role in that effort. But what what brought you to Spain? Because I understand you went when you know you several years you know after high school or right? Yeah,
1: I went to Spain the first time I had just turned nineteen. Uh, I was at the University of Washington and wanted to do a year abroad and felt that I had been studying Spanish for years and years, and I had what I thought was a Spanish at home, and felt that the opportunity to go to Spain was probably the best opportunity to grab based on language. I didn't speak French and didn't want to go to England, and um, so I applied, and at that point in time, in my bravado of thinking, A, that I was fluent, and B that I wouldn't need any American program. I wrote to the university of Madrid and said, "This is what I'd like to do."
0: Had you ever had any tr- Spanish language training, or it was based on your Ladino?
1: Oh no, I had had Spanish in school from probably sc- seventh grade all the way gotcha. through high school. Gotcha. And then you know, at the University of Washington, I think I tested out or tested within a quarter or something. So I wrote to the University of Madrid. They actually had what they called a course for foreigners. And I figured, fine, that that's for me. I actually went with a friend temporarily, road. rode, I secured a room at a Residencia. Um, when I think about it now, I just think, oh, my God, what, what possessed me to think? And I remember the night I arrived in Madrid, the plane got in late. I drove to, I had a cab take me to this address, and I stood at the front door and thought, now what? So I got buzzed in, and a woman came down to meet me, who was the owner of the Residencia, who was from Andalusia, whose accent is different than those that are in Madrid or Castile. And riding up in the elevator, I realized I was losing a third of everything she told me. I had this incredible stomachache, like, what have I done? But she was very welcoming, and she told me I would only be there a couple of nights, and I was moving to another place the next day. And I enrolled in the program for foreigners at the University of Madrid, found my way, and spent the first couple of weeks uh, wondering what I had done, and then decided that I was going to immerse myself and did. And it was just unbelievable and very rich. And I felt a very, very strong tie. The moment I sort of let go of the nervousness of being there, the tie to the culture, the language, really drew me in very quickly.
0: So, Doreen, you were there then during Franco's rule?
1: I was. I think Franco died in 75, and I was there both times under Franco's rule. And the knowledge of Sephardic heritage during that time was not at all present. People didn't weren't aware of it at all. But to see the change now and what Spain is doing now to sort of recognize Sephardic heritage and their history... It's astonishing. that It's a huge change. And in my mind, really, this is a change that's happened in 50 short years. I mean, in the lifespan of a country, it's fairly quick. But they now teach it in the schools and, and the Sephardic history. They have organizations like the Red Dehuderias, which is the Network of Jewish Cities. That's an organization of which I'm the U.S. ambassador now. And what it has done, it has joined cities together that have Sephardic heritage. They've researched it. They have taken care of bringing it up to standards so that you can actually see that and and go and visit it and enjoy it. And they actually have formed 22 cities or 23 cities that are all part of an organization where you can go from city to city and look at Sephardic uh, history and heritage.
0: Within Spain. Within Spain. So these Jewish places were not really destroyed... Sort of going back, what happened in the in terms to Jewish property, Jewish places, Jewish synagogues?
1: Much of it was destroyed. Some of it, some of the synagogues became churches. They could have become town halls. There's a place, for example, in Toledo that you're walking up one of the old streets. If you go down into one of the shops, beneath that shop are old mikvah baths. Huh. So those things, as they're being discovered, are being refurbished so that people can Enjoy the history, see the history. And that's all being done. um, This is an organization that is funded by the Spanish government. And what's the organization again called? It's called the Red de Juderías, or the Network of Jewish Cities.
0: And to some degree, it's kind of an archaeological exercise in terms of uncovering. um, In
1: In some ways, it's also just coming up with old books, old documents, and that sort of thing that are being preserved now. And exhibited. It it's seems really a, quite it amazing. It's like
0: an amazing, like detective process, you know, sort of research process, right? Because the Jewish Spain is probably there right before your eyes, but it's been covered. And and then, what about Jewish people who then decided to stay but give up Jewish observance? And kind of what has been their role? And
1: you know, this? it's very hard to say. I don't know that much about it, except that in the last several times you go to Spain, that I've been in Spain, without fail, someone will come up to me and say. You know, I think we were of Jewish descent. I think my great, you know, that there's some sign of it, that they had some custom in the family, that they found old paperwork, but it's not like they have formed um, some sort of an organization or unified themselves together.
0: Well, it's an interesting thing of sort of, again, from archaeology, because it affected both places and people, right? right? Because there's people whose Jewish identity has been submerged, but maybe that's, that's harder to rediscover. Well,
1: there's been a lot of hard work and efforts that have been put into this rediscovery. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's just sort of part of the process that's going on in Spain. A couple of years ago, I also remember that Spain had asked for one representative from each province in education to go to Israel to learn how to teach the Holocaust. Mm. So it's sort of a movement in general of coming to terms with history and the Sephardic history, which has been very, very important in Spain, and bringing it forward so that you understand Who you are and -hmm. where you came from. Mm -hmm. It's your history and it's Mm -hmm. all of their history. Mm -hmm. And I think that as this goes on further, you see how many people have been touched. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, you know, fast forward to 2015, where a law was passed granting the opportunity for citizenship to Jewish people. And before that, a gradual, you know, maybe post Franco, a gradual interest in just being more open about history itself, following the sort of the calamity of the Spanish Civil War, then quasi fascism. And now tell us sort of about the political shift and maybe as it underscores what's going on around this process of rediscovery.
1: Well, the government's changed, obviously, many times. It is a parliamentary monarchy now. But with the beginning of with King Juan Carlos, when he was brought in in the early 90s, he said publicly, how at the, actually at the 500th anniversary of the, of the Inquisition or the expulsion, He said publicly that he thought it was was time for the Sephardics to come back to Spain. He wanted them to feel comfortable coming back, not as if they were home, but that they were home. And it was an important movement. And from then sort of forward, more and more was done. And then I don't know when the original thing started of making a law to change the citizenship issue. But in 2015, it passed. I remember I was there in 2014 on a very small tour with the um, Honorary consul here of Washington, Luis Fernando steban he took a few of us on sort of a roots trip through Spain, and it was absolutely fascinating. And, you know, every time you go, you learn something new and you see something different. But during that time, we visited an organization called Centro Sefarad Israel, which is in Madrid, which is another governmental agency that is working to bridge the gap between Jews, Spain, and Israel— And they, at that point, had talked about people working on the um, law, not knowing at that point whether it was going to be passed. But I remember getting up early in the morning of the day it was supposed to be passed just to see. And in 2015, it passed. And it wasn't easy in that I felt I needed to do something. And I obviously, for my tie to Spain and my uh, feelings about Spain, I wanted the citizenship. But in starting that process, I realized that it would take someone like myself and others to facilitate it for others to become citizens as well. You had to have certain letters. They had to be signed by certain people of the community, wherever you're from, whether it be Seattle or New York or London, to verify your Sephardic heritage. For those people that were over 18, you had to take a Spanish language test, a cultural test. So there were lots of steps. So we started putting everything together, We got the letters. We got them translated. And Seattle became a center for the uh, citizenship for a while. And then Miami opened up, and I think a little bit in New York.
0: Did you work with leaders in those communities as well? I did, because
1: we had the letters here. Uh And so we had gone through the process. And then by that time, I had gone through the process of the testing, Hmm. which the test wasn't easy. But also, the tests were being given by the Cervantes Institute, and there were only four in the U.S., so people had to travel to get to them. And
0: what is the Cervantes Institute?
1: Cervantes Institute, we have one actually at the University of Washington. It's an institute that actually works with um, Spanish culture. They do language classes. They can You can go there and take any sorts of class at, uh, for both language and culture. So I took the exams. We got the letters. We got them through the synagogues to make sure that they got signed properly. Everything had to be... Just as the government wanted, because you were submitting these documents, we were in contact with a couple of immigration attorneys in Spain, which I used to refer, because obviously I wasn't able to do it. It was just be able to get them started. And then somewhere along the way, we had really tried to talk about the people that were elderly that might want it, but unable to go now and take a test, Mm -hmm. both in language and in culture. Primarily because they never spoke Spanish. They only spoke Ladino, and the test was in modern-day Spanish. Mm -hmm. And they passed an amendment that over 70, you didn't have to take the exams. So that worked out for a few people. So we got through that process, and I started taking calls from all over the U.S. and even internationally because, you know, while I was handling the English part of the things in the U.S., there were places in other countries that they hadn't gone through the actual process yet of what they needed to do. Okay.
0: And then through that process, then, uh, either through your efforts or, or, you know, your cohorts in other cities, then how many people ended up applying and getting Spanish citizenship? You know, we're trying to figure
1: out the numbers. I think the Spaniards originally thought there would be like maybe 70 or 80,000, and I don't think we reached those numbers at all. Okay. But, you know, different things historically made a difference. When Venezuela started to have political problems, Uh we received more. When Brexit passed in England we received more. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't really know. I think right now, I mean, there's been tens of thousands, but I think that now, for example, on the West Coast in San Francisco, there are 400 people waiting to sign off. Okay, And then LA would have a different amount. So the law ended a year ago, but not then with COVID and everything going on, not everybody has completed the process. Okay. So what will happen with that will be interesting. Okay.
0: Well, good. So, I'd like to shift a little bit and just talk about what it meant for you, and maybe for other people. Was this a symbolic? Was getting Spanish citizenship for you like symbolically beneficial? Are there tangible benefits in doing it? Because obviously, there's a lot of work involved to do that. And I'm just trying to. It would be helpful to understand. I think I understand why it's important. It's a connection back to your own past, correct? And in some ways, it rights a wrong too. I mean, being thrown out of a country, even though they can't like make it good for the people that were originally thrown out. And this is a very relevant conversation today with reparations right. for African Americans, for Native Americans, Native right? Americans. So, so it's a very relevant conversation, and it's a very frightening conversation too, because it means you know maybe granting rights and benefits to people that have been excluded from those, maybe for the general population. So, I'm trying to understand that for you personally what occurred to you going through this process, and and was the benefit really symbolic or tangible or how that?
1: I think for me, it was a little bit of both things. For sure, it was something very symbolic. It was being able to get something back that had been taken away when nobody wanted it taken away, so it was forcibly taken away. And it was very symbolic in that respect, and I felt like I was sort of taking on those ancestors behind me, and I was doing it for those people as well. But I didn't have any feeling that there needed to be reparations. Mm -hmm. Um, Was there a conversation, though, amongst
0: about?
1: Well, there was always a conversation of why are they doing this now? What do they want from us? They're not giving us this, and they're not giving us that. I think, to me, the issue of the law was such a recognition of the wrong. They hadn't said anything prior to that. Like I said, in '69, nobody talked about it. Nobody had any knowledge of it all. And to go there today... To see almost a renaissance of that history and what they're doing to um, bring it to the forefront, to to recognize its importance, was huge to me, having lived it. So I wasn't concerned about reparations. That wasn't it for me. Mm -hmm. I think the recognition and what the government was doing and how the people sort of were taking it in, and what they were doing with it was much more important to me. Now, if you'd never been to Spain, you may look at it totally differently mm-hmm. because you don't have that feeling of tie. Mm-hmm. But as a young person, and even when I go now, to be able to go there, feel at home, and feel such a tie on some sort of emotional level is, is I think it's very valuable.
0: Are any Jewish people moving back kind of in light of the citizenship,
1: well, not American Jews, probably. From other countries, that probably Maybe might the be the case. World. in Spanish the Spanish world. In the Spanish world, for sure. Yeah. And for somebody coming f- from the States or from another country who doesn't speak the language, you'd be looking at an uphill climb to figure out what you're going to do there. But if, for example, you were coming from a country that was Spanish-speaking, whose government was also oppressive, or you were having difficulty... Or Venezuela, you, know, you mentioned. Right. Then I would think you would try and take that opportunity. It's never easy to change countries, Mm -hmm. but our ancestors did it. It worked for them.
0: So tell me this. So for your children and grandchildren, there is an impact moving forward in terms of your having done this. Does citizenship confer to them?
1: It doesn't, but I actually have gotten Spanish citizenship for all three of my grandchildren. So because they didn't have to exam, Mm -hmm. I was able to do it just by showing lineage. Mm -hmm. But I have two sons, And because they fall within the age group that would need to exam, they don't have it Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. can't get it Mm -hmm. through me or even Mm -hmm. through their children.
0: Well, good. Another kind of topic to cover is sort of the national identity. So I know there's been periods in U.S. history where there's been anti-Chinese, anti—you know, the feeling that people who had immigrated here didn't belong, that they weren't truly Americans during World War II, Japanese-Americans, even people who fought in the war against, you know, the Axis were disenfranchised— there's ideas of loyalty oaths and whatnot. Jewish people throughout history have been, you know, the question is, are they really loyal to, even now, in anti-Semitism with, you hear this this trope. So I'm just wondering, from your perspective, have, being a citizen of Spain, a citizen of the United States, has that changed your understanding of sort of national identity and how that, um, because, you know, I think that in periods of xenophobia here in the U.S., there's kind of an either-or, mm-hmm. there, you're... You're either American or you're against America. And obviously, Spain is welcoming people as citizens, but they're also citizens of other countries. And that's sort of, they're sort of celebrating the culture of the outsider, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just wondering how that kind of reifies back for you in terms of your understanding of who you are, what is your identity nationally? And is there anything we can learn from that in terms of like enriching our lives or having a possibility of being a person of multiple nationalities and an American?
1: To carry the, the Spanish citizenship, I carry dual citizenship. I didn't have to give up anything to get it. Having So I don't know what I would have done if somebody said it's an either-or. Well, I do know. I probably would have stayed right where I am. Sure. But having achieved this and attained this, in, this citizenship now um, does give a different perspective. And I think that it's important to realize, and maybe you don't until you actually venture forth, is that it is a big world that we shouldn't be so compartmentalized by borders. And while I am a citizen of Spain, you know, I hold an EU passport. It's an amazing... When it arrived, I thought to myself, oh, my goodness. You just feel part of a bigger whole. And I think that that's an important thing. The more you narrow your world, the more fearful you become, the more skeptical you become. And as you broaden your horizons, those things sort of fall away, and you realize... There is so much more out there if we just open up to it.
0: So if your grandmother were alive today, how would she feel about your having done this?
1: I think my grandmother would not be surprised. (laughs) I think she wouldn't be surprised. She always used to say that there's more beyond Seattle. There's more beyond this. I mean, she had, we were a family of the diaspora. I mean, we had relatives come. She had a house that was large enough to hold visitors. And we had relatives come from from Greece, from Lima, from Belgium. From, and, and they would come on the house, and they, would, they were family. The, culturally, it was the same. If they decided to cook a meal one night, it was the same food as we'd had. And the common language was Ladino. Mm. And so they may have spoken French or Greek at home, but the common language was Ladino. And um, there's something quite cementing about all that.
0: Well, we asked our guests to bring a physical object uh, that matters to them as well, that sort of represents who they are. And so, interestingly, when I made that request of you, you said, well, you you know what the object is, but you can't bring it. And I'd like you to share why you couldn't bring it and what you brought instead.
1: So years ago, my grandmother, before she passed away, had a wooden box that was wrapped in paper that she said her father had sent her from Istanbul after she was here for a while. And uh, he was a, amongst other things, evidently, he traded in perfume oils. And inside this wooden box was a bottle with perfume oils. And I've had it, well, my grandmother died when I was 18, so I've had it for quite a long time. And recently, um, I had given it and donated it to the Sephardic Digital Museum, which is at the University of Washington. Um, Professor Devin Nahr, who is the professor for Sephardic Studies at the University of Washington, and his team have put together this incredible digital museum. I think it is the largest digital museum of artifacts in the U.S., along with other documents that families that are within the Sephardic community have turned over books and documents that he's digitized there. And so I had given it to him, so I was able to call him and say, I, I need at least the digitized picture of what it was that I had donated. So that's what I have today. Can it's see a picture of the box. And you can see that the box has been wrapped in paper. Mm-hmm. It appears to have gone to New York on Christie Street first, mm-hmm. and then sent to my grandmother from there. And she had it forever. And it was amazing because there are still perfume oils in the bottle.
0: Mm. And it was originally from Turkey. Mm-hmm. From oh. Istanbul. Istanbul, huh. So earlier, when we started, you talked about there's a little bit of this kind of assimilation or a little bit of loss of some of the original, kind of what bonded the local Sephardic community and mostly in Seward Park together. And at the same time, there's a global resurgence and in interest in Ladino language and the diaspora culture. And Seattle is sort of the center of that through the University of Washington. So just can you share a little bit as we kind of wrap up this tale of, you know, grand journeys across time Concentrated culture, and then maybe a little bit of loss. Kind of what's going on moment at this moment in Sephardic culture globally, but especially here in Seattle, that's worth celebrating or sharing.
1: So the Seattle community is the, actually is the third largest in the U.S., and um, in many ways, I've I've always felt that it was of the most pure. In that, while they remained in that sort of uh, uh, sewer Park community. They were able to maintain and preserve the culture probably better than had they started moving out of the neighborhood earlier. So things about the language and the all the customs sort of stay true to themselves. And there are many Sephardic Jews that still live in that area. So with that, and the Sephardic Studies program at the University of Washington, which is still one of the best in the US, and now they have in their Ladino language program, they have a PhD now, which is unbelievable. For a language Mm -hmm. like this. So with that, there was a community intact to pull off of a lot of information that we can now digitize and save and have for historical purposes. But along with that happening, and maybe as part of that happening, there's been this incredible sort of renaissance of Sephardic culture and heritage throughout the world. It's been here. It's been in Spain. It's been other places that have developed Sephardic museums. There have always been places that had like Jewish museums, Mm -hmm. but they weren't Sephardic museums or even a Jewish museum that had a part of the museum that was Sephardic. And that's all come to be the idea of the academics behind it and the, the study of what Sephardic culture is and was and how we got to where we are today has become even more important Years ago, the majority of the Sephardic community belonged and were affiliated with some synagogue or organization. That's not the case today. Mm. Today, most are unaffiliated. And we have found that if you do something culturally, for example, there's a Sephardi fest that has happened a couple of times at the Jewish Community Center in Mercer Island. They come out in droves, and many of these young people that come out to celebrate their culture, are unaffiliated. But there's something in them that wants to recognize and and enjoy this culture that they remember. And it could be only small things. But they're very, very well-received and very well-attended. So it's a very hard line to walk as things become more assimilated to try and maintain the culture. The Seattle Sephardic Network, from which we started a few years ago, is also there for that purpose. We have a mission to put out information to educate. And also if there's anything happening in Seattle for Sephardics or New York for Sephardics or, or Los Angeles, to put it out there so that people are aware of it and can learn from it or participate if they care to. But there are more of these organizations now because there is the interest, but it maintains a, to be, a, it just is a very difficult thing to maintain because as people assimilate further, it's hard; they're less concentrated, much more difficult.
0: Great. And then for those in Seattle that want to learn more about the Sephardic, I guess the Seward Park community it would just be merely walking, taking a walk through Seward Park Avenue, you know, from Rainier right to Seward Park.
1: If you go to the SeattleSephardicNetwork.org website, there is a actual Sephardic tour that is being done. A, A woman by the name of Cynthia Flash has helped put this together, and it actually isn't the Seattle Seward Park neighborhood, but actually the central area where the Sephardic Jews began, It has the old synagogue, which is now the Tolliver Church. And it's a very, very interesting and historic walk through what was the old Sephardic community. And that can be fa- information on that can be found at the Seattle Sephardic Network website. And there will be different tours that you can sign up for. They aren't running necessarily like one a week, but there are some that you can sign up for and partake. It's absolutely fascinating.
0: Fascinating, Doreen. Good. Good. And as we wrap up here, we had a special announcement. Um, you just got a, a missive from the, the uh, King of Spain, and I see it on your desk there. What do you have to share?
1: I don't know that it's a missive, but um, I have been granted knighthood by the King of Spain. And actually, interestingly enough, the name of the order for which I was knighted is the Isabel La Católica, the same queen that expelled us. Wow. Is now the <laughs> Orden of which I'm being honored. Um, and to me, also, that is very historic. It's Aww. sort of full circle.
0: That's really sweet, Doreen.
1: Full circle.
0: Congratulations. Thank I would you. say mazel Tov, but that's Yiddish. What is the uh, Sephardic? Enhorabuena. Enhorabuena. Really beautiful. Thank you. Well, thank you, Doreen, for being our guest today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you, our listeners, for joining us for another episode of EK On The Go. Subscribe to us anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Join us next time when we're going to explore preservation of natural and cultural resources through a conversation with the leadership of an organization here called Forterra. We'll be talking with Nicholas Bratton. It should be really great. You won't want to miss it. If you have a place that matters to you and you'd like to tell us about it, please get in touch. Until next time, this is Edward Kriegsman with Ikeameco. Thanks again.